I'm Kate Daniels. One thing that I hope we have become aware of in this past year is that there's a lot of education and learning we need to understand history, to understand the injustices that have been perpetuated. This weekend, we honor the memory of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. To guide us in some awarenesses, Lorene Carey joins us. Lorene is an incredible storyteller, an author, a teacher, and social activist. Lorene Carey, good morning and welcome once again. We did have an opportunity last summer to have a good conversation about your memoir, Lady Sitting, My Year with Nana at the End of Her Century. Then I have seen uh, a banner that was hung at the front of your church, Black Lives Matter, and you then wrote this incredible piece on Medium.com, Let's Say Black Lives Mattered. So because of who you are as a social activist, as a teacher at the University of Pennsylvania, you're teaching uh, young people about writing and modeling it by doing it yourself. Here on this weekend that we celebrate the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., I therefore thought it would be great to have you come and join us and share some of your insights. Hmm. Well, 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 thank you <laughs> so much, by the way, for having me back. I, I must tell you that thinking about MLK Day and his work— always makes me sort of go back and it feels like an opportunity to make sure to reread some of what he said. And often that leads me back to the letter from a Birmingham jail. But this year I found myself reading, reading forward right up to uh, the mountaintop speech because it really was that, that speech right before he was assassinated shows me how his thinking had moved from uh, African-American rights and voting rights and economic rights, moved from that to economic justice more uh, broadly and also included nonviolence. So he was thinking about the Vietnam War. He was thinking about the uh, garbage worker strike and had begun what he called the Poor People's Campaign. All of that was about economic justice. And there's so much of that that I hear, you know, it's taken these years and, you know, more than 50 years to work its way into the lives and minds and hearts and spirits of the young people I worked with with the Vote That John movement for youth vote in Philadelphia. So much of that economic justice is a threat to to white nationalism, white supremacy, anything that, that's white only that would say, oh my goodness, poor white people, poor Asians, poor Latinos, poor African-Americans, don't you all get together because what matters more than that, more than the fact that your families, you know, deserve everything that everybody else is, you know, deserve to eat, to have shelter, to have a good education, um, opportunities for work, and, and a chance to help us solve problems 
we need everybody on deck for that. Um, all of that has to be put aside because we have one vision of our country, and that's the vision started by the founders, which was that it's landed white men who will run things, and then everybody else will scratch out, as we say. So for me, that's a little bit of a tonic in these in these times is to reread King and to see how his mind went from, he said, nonviolence. If we don't pay attention to nonviolence, then we are going to move toward non-existence. And he was talking about all kinds of violence, violence against black people, against poor people. Against, um, and now the students in my classes say that nonviolence aims toward nonviolence toward the planet. That it, it is totally about existence. Totally, absolutely about the life of everything on this planet. And so, so they link all of the Black Lives Matters to other people's lives matter and to all life matters and to climate change. And realistically, we see that in order to exist, that fundamental part of it, that all life matters, looking at the planet is so critical, but it's all very intricately interwoven, isn't it? Because you can't say, well, I care about this, but then really abuse or are violent toward whether it's a, an animal, a human being, a plant, the planet. It's all so, so interwoven. It's all life. How can we distinguish, discriminate between all of that and the harm that we do inflict? The, the gospel message um, that, and I, I feel free doing this, not just because I'm a clergy spouse, <laughs> but also because, you know, King, um, King started from his understanding of the gospel and then, you know, pulled out into his activism. But it starts with the, the gospel um, call, which is Jesus saying that whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me. So I've grown up understanding that whatever America does to black people, they will do to others. What, so what, because, because we learn from the structures we create, and that's whether the structure is architecture or uh, the way we do social structures, we, we learn from them. And then we learn where the flaws are or the faults are or how they can be corrupted, and then we try to make them better. Over and over and over, we do that every generation. That's what, kind of what we do. Had we America's first large-scale separation of families occurred during African-American slavery, where, where it was a, a policy. Now, it happened by accident in other ways, right? The first time we did chemical or biological warfare was giving um, infected blankets to Native people. And then 
there sickening and dying. The first time, and, and many families were separated, but that was a, that was a side, um, god-awful um, sideline to the, to the infection. With slavery, the separating of families was necessary commercially so that you could sell people one by one according to their um, labor, individual labor value. Having done that and having failed to acknowledge it, grieve for it, make atonement for it in some way nationally in our policy, having failed to do that, because it's under the radar, because we, and, and I believe personally that we feel the shame of it, but we don't, we sort of don't know where that shame is from. It's sort of free, free floating. But having done that, it remains a social tool that we could then pull out and use against people trying to come in over the border. And again, how was it done? It was done so that only the group of people who were doing it knew about it. And then um, then other people learned, and then there's fighting about it. We fight politically. We say, who has the authority? We do. And then we fight once that kind of really hard thing is done. Then we fight using our rules, um, which are not always adequate, so that we have to fix the rules. Later, after the just after the, the thing has been done, just like we often fix rules about uh, violence after the violence has been committed. That is all just so powerful and makes so much sense. There's a real simplicity to it, although it's also very intricate. Um, <laughs> and Lorene, you started off by saying you, you feel like you can say this because you are the wife of, uh, of a clergy person. But really, this you are someone who has really obviously studied this and given great thought to it so that it comes across as just so much common sense. It's also lived experience. You know, I, sometimes I, I joke that you know, come on over. The, the reason I I started my uh, book writing, I mean, I'd written before in magazines, but the reason I wrote a memoir as my first book, and I had lots of other book possibilities. I went to my agent. I said, I wanted to do this. I wanted to do that. Um, the, the one she picked that she said, no, she didn't pick it. She said to me, which one do you need to write first? As a writer, your first book teaches you how to write a book. So which one do you need to write first as a writer? And then I realized I needed to do this memoir. Why? I mean, there's a huge, you know, historic um, precedent for African-American people doing memoirs because they, they needed to make the case over and over to an America that doubted it that they were fully human. It's the same thing as all those garbage workers, I mean, going back to King and standing up with those signs saying, I am a man. 
the signs that you know they walked up and down and i think it was 63 with those signs at that point of course i was reading well enough to be able to read them and it sort of stays in my mind i am a man it's completely the same message as black lives matter it's a it's a gendered version 1963 version of it mm-hmm. now all of that you know what makes me say, well, why do you write a memoir? You're saying you're human, but you're also saying to your reader, here, come over to my side of the street and look at the world from here. And I mean, am I nuts or does it look like this to you? Like, that's why you write a memoir, to say this is, this is how it felt. Come, come walk with me a little bit in, in, in my skin whatever color, whatever shape it is. Come, come see. We, one time I, I was, um, for about 15 years, I ran an arts or founded and ran an arts organization here in the city called Art Sanctuary for African American Arts and Letters. And we did, we did one of my most amazing fun events was to have black sci-fi writers all got together and did a great panel. Octavia Butler, uh, Tanana Redu, Stephen Barnes, um, a guy named Torre. He, he did more magical realism than so. So have all of these people at the Franklin Institute in the planetarium <laughs> <laughs> you know, with its stars and so that kind of stuff. <laughs> and one of the things that this young guy Torre said was that, you know, people were saying, well, why would black people do sci-fi? You know, geeky kind of... And it was that same idea, which is, it is so hard for Americans to see outside this foundational American construct of race. That sometimes if you do sci-fi and you've got creatures and people have antennae and it's on a different planet, then people can understand what you're saying because Mm -hmm. it's, it's, so much easier to see it when you take off the American race glasses. And race, by the way, biologically, is a construct. It, it's nothing. Yes, that's right. It's nothing biologically. Tiny, tiny little bits of DNA and RNA that give some people Tay-Sachs or something. But, but it's, it's nothing. It's a construct. Mm-hmm. The thing that is really real is racism and and all of the tools that we have created to separate human beings who are essentially the same. And we know they're the same because, as we know, um, unlike different species, we can all get together and um, bear living young together, right? Which is Mm -hmm. why I'm an African-American who has freckles. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I keep thinking about is my life as a writer has been about finding, listening to, interpreting, writing, rewriting, arguing against stories. That's what I do is I tell stories. Mm -hmm. Um, As a teacher at Penn, I talk to I talk to my students about storytelling in all different forms um, fiction nonfiction 
theater, libretti, how do we tell stories? How does the form affect the story? And a, a lot of what we do in the United States functions on, on the level of, of storytelling because, because stories are the way we as human beings make meaning, find meaning. And without meaning, without meaning, we don't, it's very hard for us to live. We, we need meaning. So we're always coming up with stories that that we find or discover or someone's told us or they, they've told us and we change it. And um, because we're, we're, we're arguing, you know, when you go down to your foundational story and you're either pulling it up by the roots or somebody else is pulling it up by the roots or you're examining it to see if it's true or not or all of that constantly happening constantly is exhausting Mm -hmm. and because i've spent you know i joke with uh i joke with my my family and friends that i've spent a lot of my life in the 19th century (laughs) (laughs) you know writing fiction writing nonfiction, even in lady sitting trying to look into the life of my grandmother's father Mm-hmm. There during Reconstruction and then moving north during Jim Crow. It's during that that period at the end of the 19th century. You had a time where different groups of people in the United States had wildly different stories about what was happening right then and there. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's. A, it's exhausting. It's also exhausting to discipline oneself, to keep listening to somebody else's story, to listen peacefully and and practically and with and strategically to say, how can I understand what these people are saying? How can I understand why they believe something so different? And how can I figure out disciplining myself because their story is saying things about me that that are hurtful and dangerous? But I still have to discipline myself to listen. How can I listen to that and figure out ways to live and to engage with their story and try to advance the story I have, which is that my story is I'm a full human being and I want to be included as a full human being. Um, In the case of African-Americans, I want to be included as a full human being with my history in this country beginning um, as being considered three-fifths of a human being. Mm Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. Hearing it, I can feel the exhaustion. Living it, it's just incomprehensible. Yeah, you know, know, the other thing that that is, I mean, our other um, really big story um, vault in the United States has to do with the um the sibling the 
sibling religions that come from uh, the Middle East. And our, our arguing, our fighting, our beliefs, our schisms uh, among uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So all of that, all of that came over with us, displacing the native people and their um, their sort of land honoring spirituality. So so we've got all of that stuff, and we're still. I mean, that gave us meaning. Right. But we're still fighting about those stories and how they interact with this national story that we tell in various ways. And and that, too, um, I mean, that's the those are ultimate stories. Why do I exist? How did we come here? Um, and and we even though Christianity in particular. Christianity has at its center a first-century Jew in sandals who said, there's Caesar, you know, there's Rome, and there's God, and, like, split them up, guys. Even though that's true, we have that Christianity wound through with our understanding of this, of our various national myths. And that makes it even harder for um, all of us to grant each other a hearing. You know, when, when I hear people talking about um, this, the idea of Christian nationalism, I think to myself, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? What? Did, what, did, what? <laughs> but it's, 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 um, there has a very strong hold on us. Fear has a stronghold on us, and this idea, this crazy idea of Christian nationalism, which comes from, I don't know where, but I, I do know where it comes from, but it seems, for me, it's really hard for me to find any gospel um, roots for something called Christian nationalism. I so appreciate having these conversations with you, Lorene, because uh, you obviously are a deep thinker, and in writing, uh, that certainly is is a part of it, uh, yet you have such a gentle way of putting it across in such an, what I feel is an easy-to-understand way that just makes such great sense. Good. It's it's also a defense. We t- we started talking um, earlier, even before the proper interview, about being exhausted by this time and exhausted by the discipline of of staying staying fully human, of not going to other other people, to stay with I and thou instead of I and it. Right. Yes. That discipline takes energy. But what I can't do is let my own rage, which I am always disciplining, I can't let it 
can't open up the basement and let the 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 rage come up and um, devour the very humanity. My whole grown-up life is working to develop, to articulate, to develop, to model for my my children, for people I love. I've got to figure out a way to stay to stay in love rather than to let the hate. And that's that's what happens when you stoke up hatred in people. You make them less human, less compassionate, less vulnerable, and then they're capable of anything. Mm. I don't want to go there. I don't, I don't want to be there. I don't as as the mother, I don't want my children I don't want my grandchildren, I don't want my students, I don't want my husband to, I don't want to betray them or withdraw from them, this person that I have been working my whole life to be, and and just be this other rage bomb, I guess. Mm. I mean, like, what's the point? Yes. And so there is a challenge to work against, but you know that the ultimate is to have love. And that that is really the message for all of us in our lives, is to really have that love, true agape, unconditional love, be at the center of what we do. And so with, with what you have said and, and how this has evolved, which I had no concept of it's i feel it it is the message to come forward though because it's it just is here i feel um it thus is such an honor to the life and now the memory of martin luther king junior for what his message was through through the different chapters but ultimately that's would you say that's what he was really aiming for Absolutely, and I, and I think that's one of the great reasons to celebrate this day is to remind, to come back to, to remind ourselves, to remind ourselves in a national context. I mean, we do it in our various little worship groups, which can sometimes be more tribal than they are spiritual, truth to tell. Um, but it's a national day to say, King didn't just say to have love, said to figure out how to do, do love. How do you work the big love? How do you, what, what does your work look like if you infuse it with love? If you put love at the top instead of ambition, you know, businesses always do that. They always say, we always say in business, whatever you pay attention to is what you grow. So if you pay attention to money, you just make money and you don't pay attention to, uh, then, then safety is second. Sometimes you pay attention to safety, you're going to make fewer profits. All right, but but you th- those that's your priority. What's your priority? So if you put love at the top, then what will you do? What will your invoice look like? What will your work look like with your local school board? Everything you do, what will it look like if you keep putting love on top? And by the way, the the Everything in our lives tempts us to 
to let it slip over, slip off, slip, slip, slip down. But if you keep putting it up on top, what's it look like? What does your ambition, how does that look like if ambition is down underneath love? It's so clarifying, so clarifying. Yes, it it is. And you have been so wonderful at helping us to think about these things, to really ponder and, and see a really strong direction for us to go. So we take this weekend to to reflect on the life of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., the meaning, and to think about how then, as you said, to construct this life, to live it, you know, to really honor what we've been given and being given our life. Amen. Amen. Well, I, again, I'm so grateful to you because of just who you are, simply, and that you provoke us in a very good way to really ponder these things that will be for the betterment of our individual selves and thus for our community, for our whole planet. Thank you. Thank you so much, dear. Appreciate it.